0: I'm Maura aarons and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Double standards abound in a lot of aspects of our lives, and that includes the working world. I know, I know, you're shocked. <laughs> Leaders, though, corporate cultures, might say they value one thing, But those same standards aren't applied to all people. When I think about how far we've come in the space I work in, workplace mental health, we've made real positive change. Every day I see the narrative furthered, people talking about mental health and work from a perspective of strength and success. And frankly, every time I see a man cry on TV, I feel a little bit more hopeful. But there's still bias, and today, will zero in on gender in particular, because while more and more leaders who are men might be joining the conversation around mental health and showing their feelings, there's still a lot of stereotyping that goes on when a woman is dealing with something emotionally and mentally straining on the job. My guest today is Marian Cooper. She's a sociologist at Stanford, where she focuses on women's leadership, gender, DEI, economic insecurity, and more. And if you haven't heard of her, you likely know her work. Marianne was the lead researcher on the now infamous but very famous book by Cheryl Sandberg, Lean In, and she co-authors the Lean In and McKinsey study on women in the workplace. Just as we get going here, broadly, what's, what's changed and what hasn't for women at work since 2013?
1: I think not as much has changed as we all would have liked. So I was thinking about, well, representation is a little bit better at the leadership levels. Like, you know, we're now at about 26% of the C-suite is comprised of women up from like, you know, 23% several years ago, but it's, it's very slow going. I think it's, more accurate to say that the progress is really at a glacial pace. And if not for the continued efforts of a lot of people, we may be, you know, taking steps backwards. So, you know, not as much has changed, I think, layering on top of that, the pandemic and how that hit women pretty hard in a lot of different ways lack of child care, you know, health concerns, um, having to leave the workforce or reduce hours for periods of time and the long-term implications of that, you know, we'll see, you know, we still couldn't pass paid family leave at the federal level, even though a pandemic happened. So <laughs> I, I think it's sort of a status quo and not as much as improved. The one area I think there has been significant progress is just greater awareness about sexual harassment because of the Me Too movement. And I think that is extremely important. A lot of companies changed their policies and approaches, started taking it more seriously. And while there's still a lot of work to be done, uh, that progress, I think, was very substantive and important.
0: Yeah. I mean, sort of as an interested bystander, I feel like a lot has changed, but I wonder if our old biases have not. Mm -hmm. And so there's this like outward level of a lot of policy change but are we still stuck in so many old patterns of gender norm?
1: I think so. And just well, right now, if we're talking about how we think about work and how we work, a lot has changed because of the disruption of the pandemic, right? So we had this massive shift to remote work, and still sizable percentages of the workforce are are working remotely or people are working hybrid schedules, mostly you know, in sort of professional knowledge worker kind of jobs, but it's a huge transformation. And that, I think, from this year's or last year's Women in the Workplace report, we saw that women really liked that, that it was a game changer for women. So that is a huge change and, and positive change in that women who work mostly remotely reported fewer microaggressions and greater psychological safety the concern is just how this will shake out over time. Will people still have the same opportunities for assignments, work projects, leadership opportunities if they're not in the office all the time? So that really has changed in a lot of ways. But these sort of outdated norms that you're referencing, you know, they're very culturally durable. The idea of like long hours, face time, being shoulder to shoulder with people, that sort of apprenticeship model, like a lot of those things are very strong and they can they can be difficult for women to navigate around.
0: But is part of what you're saying maybe that remote work mediates that just because of the digital screen between us? I'm always curious about that.
1: I think so. I think the reduction in experiencing microaggressions is a huge finding. Mm -hmm. It's huge. Like when we got that data, I was like, oh my God, like, it's, it's rare to have an intervention that works as much as I, I think that one has, which is sort of a sad commentary on the state of affairs, right? <laughs> like the only way you reduce microaggressions is not having to be around other people. It, it is, but then I think it was certain kinds of microaggressions more than others, sort of like othering, like negative comments, things like that. And, and I think the screen it reduces certain kinds of social interactions, I would say, like the kind of casual chit chat, you know, around the table. That's often when people say stuff like that's deemed to be microaggressions or slights or just like inappropriate stuff, things like that. And so I think not having to be around it is uh, it, it creates, you know, that space for people that, that, that many prefer men and women for that matter but women seem to like it more because i think their their experiences you know at the aggregate level are are worse than men's are
0: you know one of the things that i was also thinking about just in getting ready for this interview is that you know if i want to cry during the meeting now
1: i just turn off my screen and go on mute mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's so different right right yeah that you can hide it if you want to more easily yeah i mean i think it does create sort of a a way to shield deception in some ways about one's emotional state you know when you're in face to face with someone if you're you know assuming that you're trying not to cry if that's the case like you're really having to work on yourself right and it's it's a lot it's to hold that all in whereas if you're on a zoom call you're like can you hold on a second (laughs) (laughs) in some ways i think you're allowed to be more authentically you than you are in in the office, in in certain offices, I would say. Yeah.
0: So I was really spurred to have this conversation with you because a few months ago on LinkedIn, you posted an article citing a study that showed that labeling a woman as, quote, emotional or telling her to calm down makes her point of view seem less credible, right? It Mm -hmm. diminishes a woman's credibility in our eyes when we see her as emotional.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you have written and done a lot of research on women, emotions, and work.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I found this to be a huge dilemma because for me, I'm always telling people to be open about their emotions at work, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. if you're anxious, that's okay. Let's talk about it. We are emotional at work, we're emotional, we're human. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's there's a huge movement. Bring your whole self to work. Bring your human to work. Mm-hmm. All this great stuff. But is this bad advice for
1: women who want to advance in leadership? Well, I think it it, it depends. And and I always joke that that's like what most sociologists how they answer questions. It's a very academic what, answer. <laughs> that's the academic answer. I I think what the research will say is that because of our gender stereotypes about emotions, women can readily be seen as being too emotional. So one of the strongest gender stereotypes there is, is that women are more emotional than men Mm -hmm. and that they're often too emotional. And so when we display emotion, when women display emotion at work, the reaction to it is filtered through these stereotypes. So You know, a woman just sheds one tear and she's deemed to be hysterical. Mm. So that's what the research would sort of show, which means you probably shouldn't bring your whole self to work because of these stereotypes and the way people are going to sort of what they're going to pay attention to or overly pay attention to and how you're going to be scrutinized that could end up not working out for you. But I think we sort of, on the other hand, are really pushing for workplaces to just be more humane places to spend time and there was a big emphasis on well-being during the pandemic and so you know we also know that being vulnerable is really important in leadership so i don't think it's a either or type of thing but i think you need to understand that there can be negative consequences for just displaying whatever emotions you're having mm-hmm. but we can't overly monitor ourselves all the time either so It's sort of, it's not wrong. I just think it's not the complete truth. You know, it's so funny when you say we can't monitor ourselves because I
0: literally just read an article in Harvard Business Review yesterday that was based on a study of women board directors. And the question was, how are we warm and vulnerable? You know, the famous research that great leaders are warm and vulnerable. And they actually prescribed a six-step calculus for women Mm -hmm. board directors Mm -hmm. who had managed to be warm and vulnerable, but exert influence. And I was like, oh my God, six steps just to be heard in a (laughs) meeting. (laughs) That's
1: insane. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is insane. I mean, this is sort of the double bind that social scientists have studied for decades now for women, which is that to be considered for leadership roles, you need to be highly competent. But you also need to have emotional control, right? You need to be calm under pressure and not let things get to you, not take things personally. Unfortunately, our conceptualizations, like culturally speaking, about leadership Are more of a match with the characteristics we associate with men. Mm. With women, there's much more of an expectation about being warm and friendly, compassionate. And so there's this mismatch often between what we think leaders are like and what we think women are like. And so women face this bind where if they're really forceful and very, you know, word something very strongly in a meeting, they can be seen as very competent but people don't really like them because they're right. violating those expectations about how women are supposed to behave, that they're supposed to be kind of modest and sort of defer to other people.
0: This was the Hillary Clinton bind for decades.
1: Yes. Well, a lot of women experience this all throughout their career. It can take, you know, different forms and different stages. Uh, a lot of women have experienced something akin to this, where they get a sense that they've crossed a the line and they're getting pushback. And so along the way, I think women develop different strategies to address this bias, because it's kind of present, ever present in in their daily work lives. And that study that you were talking about that was written up in, in HBR, it was interviews with women board members, and they do have this set of tactics that they use. And, and what the goal of the tactic is, to kind of navigate this tightrope that you're on between, you know, being seen as sufficiently competent, but also sufficiently warm and feminine. And so there's all this sort of orchestrating and tactics and like forming relationships with board members outside of the board meeting. So you're on friendly terms. And therefore, you know, when you actually are more kind of assertive in the meeting, they already like you. So you might get less pushback. The mental work and the emotional work, I think that A lot of women are doing, and it's often invisible, but it's really an additional form of work. My
0: favorite was, and I think a lot of women would resonate this, was connecting and questioning that women can't just ask a question that might be perceived as confrontational or aggressive, right? Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. we have to couch the question in a curious, compassionate, and less confrontational way. And these women had incredible strategies for
1: that. Yeah. I mean, by the time you're talking about women who are at the level of being on boards of Fortune 500 companies, like this is the best of the best because of all the stuff they have to get through to get there. It means that not only are they extremely competent and good at their job, they've had to come up with this extra kind of set of things, tactics that they use and employ to get around these kinds of double binds and biases. What's happening here is that at a cultural level, again, men have higher status and women have lower status. So when you're a member of a lower status group and you engage in a dominant behavior, like questioning someone, you often get pushback or what we would call backlash for that. So these again, yeah, you couch it. I'm I'm not calling you out at all. I'm just curious about how you approach that policy, you know, coming up with that policy. And it's so sadly, it's to make what you have to offer more palatable. It's a great question. Someone should be asking it. But often women and, and folks in other groups that are, you know, have lower social status, they often are in this bind of being unable to actually say it as what a member of of a higher status group, which in our society currently is white men,
0: okay, I have two questions I want to follow up with that. first of all, are all emotions at work equal to get women in trouble for example, is is anxiety more damaging than expressing anger or sadness?
1: I, I think again, it depends <sighs> so so social context is everything, right like Anger, I think, is less allowable, quote unquote, because anger is an emotion that's associated with dominance. And so when women are engaging in anger, which shows dominance, again, that's violating sort of their place, if you will. So that's generally not going to go over as well. Sadness, I think, because again, women are seen as compassionate and warm, that may in a certain kind of context be seen as totally appropriate and expected, you know, like sadness for maybe something their coworker is going through or sadness that a family member died if they find out it work, So it really does depend. And that's why it's actually hard to study emotion in the workplace, because there's so many things happening at the same time. The context is very much in flux and life is just happening. So it's it's hard to sort of grab it in real time. But what we typically see is that when women are engaging in dominant-like behaviors, That's when they get the sense that people are like, "Uh uh-uh, you've just crossed a line. Sadness, except if they're overly crying, (laughs) right? right? And then if they're crying because it's less maybe about sad, but like frustration, I think that can also be seen as as negative as, as losing your cool. And women, I think, because they're seen as too emotional, the threshold for them being seen as, like, losing control is lower, right? They just, you know, need to have, like, one episode of frustration. And sometimes people can feel like, wow, she's really, like, needs to get her stuff together. Right. She's a mess. She's a mess. Yeah. I mean, it'd be interesting to kind of hear the phrases that people have heard directed towards them or other people in the moment as things are happening, Mm -hmm. like what are people responding to and what is their response? So women often have a really hard time, like what emotions are okay to display and how much of that emotion is okay, right? And again, this becomes like another issue and barrier that they have to deal with in the workplace.
0: We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability. To... If you want to hear more of Zach Beret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. I was thinking about it because, you know, there's there's a lot of data that shows that anxiety is not an acceptable emotion for men, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's conflated with weakness and men have to be strong. And so men often channel those kinds of emotions into anger. Mm-hmm they compensate for anxiety with even more dominant behavior.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's important to to sort of talk about how these gender stereotypes about emotions are sort of negative for everybody, right? So the issue for men is they're not supposed to express emotion, to your point, because that's associated with weakness, But people feel and those feelings are going to go somewhere. So then where do they go? And that's sort of the concern about, you know, self destructive behaviors, externalizing behaviors into like fighting or things like that, that, the, you know, drinking or or using drugs, like those kinds of things, as well as anger, Mm -hmm. anxiety being turned into anger. So it's, it does really a disservice to everybody that we have these very gendered conceptualization about feeling. because both men and women, I think, suffer as a result.
0: I'm really fascinated by status and emotion. Mm -hmm.
1: What does status have
0: to do with emotion at work?
1: Well, status is sort of the who's allowed to express what (laughs) and under (laughs) what conditions. And, you know, status is happening all the time. It's really one of the sort of fundamental ways societies are organized. So people who have higher status often have a greater range of behaviors that they can engage in before getting called out on it because they have more power, more influence. They're sort of granted things automatically, like that they're competent. They don't necessarily have to earn it as much as other people do. If you're in a higher status group, you have more privileges, more latitudes. When you're in a lower social status group, know, you're much more prescribed and circumscribed about what you can and can't do. So that's where status kind of plays into emotions. But of course, you know, status, it's reflected in gender, it's racialized as well, and it's also reflected in social class. So it's, it's a complicated one.
0: Can men ever gain higher status by showing different emotions than they might be expected to?
1: I think in certain conditions they can. I think I've read research showing that when men get their eyes like tear up Mm -hmm. versus like really crying, (laughs) they're seen more (laughs) positively, right? And you can kind of see why that might be because they're showing appropriate emotion to something sad or moving that's taking place, but they're not not crossing that line. They're not messy. uh, They're not messy. They're not messy. Their emotions aren't out of control. They're sort of properly displaying with the correct emotional control, appropriate sad feeling, right? So it's all very kind of shellacked, I guess, is the word that comes to mind. But yeah, Yeah. it's but it feels very, like, you know, very constraining and a very hard way to be day to day.
0: Yeah, it was so interesting to me. In 2021, you found women got paid for their positive emotional support in the office with more work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This is what you tweeted. When a woman manager provides her team members with emotional support during a time of societal crises, it can be overlooked as caretaking instead of being recognized as strong crisis management. Yes. That to me is the status gap right there.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a great example of it. So sociologists have this concept of invisible labor and invisible labor is you know, forms of unpaid work that are really important for society. Like we can't function without them, like housework or, or volunteering, but they're not typically seen as work and they're culturally and economically devalued. And this invisible work is often work that is done predominantly by women. The issue is that when women are doing most of this work, like what we saw during the early parts of the pandemic, where women managers were providing more support for work-life challenges or making sure workloads are manageable, all those things, it's, you know, conflated with just how women are, right? Like women are just good at that kind of stuff because they're just caring and compassionate. So work that's seen as sort of intrinsic to women is not recognized and rewarded. It's not even seen as like an actual capacity. So, therefore, it's just seen as caretaking and not something that we should actually like put in their performance review. What's interesting slash frustrating about those findings is that companies were saying, we want our managers focused on the well being of employees. We want our managers to be focused on DEI issues. And this is in the aftermath of the national you know, reckoning on racism when George Floyd was murdered, like women managers were stepping up, they were doing more of this work, but they weren't getting recognized or rewarded for it. So, you know, this is where, again, you know, if you bring your whole self to work and you you care about these issues and you're working on them, but the company is not rewarding it, you know, at a certain point, it's like you're being exploited (laughs) for these things, which doesn't mean you should stop doing it. It's just, it really, it really bothered me. To see companies saying, yes, this work is really important, but it wasn't built into their performance reviews. They weren't recognizing or rewarding people for it, which means it was really just exploiting people who had those abilities because their abilities, their actual managerial skills. So hopefully things are changing a little bit on that front.
0: Meh. I, I actually hear <laughs> often from managers that, you know, we talk about implementing mental health awareness. And that this is, you know, it's mandates, company policy. The CEO's holding town halls. He's really into it. But managers are trained, but they're not given extra time. Right. So it becomes like that extra committee that you're asked to take on, but you're not given any extra time in your day or rewarded for
1: it. Right. Right. So then it becomes volunteer work. Totally. So it's, again, and this is where, you know, it's incumbent on companies to really think, what's the through line here? (laughs) And I would say, too, that what's expected of managers has really increased, at least since we've been doing the report. But, you know, our our world is on fire in so many ways. I mean, we're living through such interesting slash hard, difficult times. And so managers are supposed to, you know, have career conversations, make sure their direct reports are getting, you know, skill-building opportunities, understanding, you know, the way bias and discrimination plays out, mm-hmm. um, make sure that they're, they understand, like, mental health things to be watching out for their employees. Like, at a certain point, it's like that's all they can do is manage. They can't do their individual contributor role and do all this managerial stuff if we're taking all of these things really seriously. So I think a lot of companies struggle with this, how to sort of upskill their managers. Now, now we're asking managers, you, you may have teams where, Some people are working hybrid. Some people are working remote. The list goes on and on. And I think most managers are not equipped to be doing all of this, um, nor, to your point, are they given sufficient time. And when that's the reality, then you're not really caring about these issues. You're just sort of saying you are.
0: It all begs a question for me, which is, what's the strategic way to bring your whole self to work right now?
1: (laughs) That's a big question, isn't it? The strategic way... (laughs) I mean, I think the so in in the ideal scenario, you don't have to be strategic. You just come to work and you talk about whatever you want to talk about, or you can be open with your emotions. But I think the research is clear that that can have certain moments where it's not going to work out for you. Mm -hmm. So part of this is like, reflecting on your experiences at work, where have you gotten pushback? Where have you not? Mm -hmm. And just thinking about that. And, And again, this should be something that organizations are thinking about and solving. But in my experience, it's like they're not. And so then it's left to the individual to sort of sort all this out. So I think the goal is to find companies, teams, managers, leaders who are more willing to have people bring their full selves to work. But I think what that means is very different to different people. And I would be very thoughtful about what that means and how to apply it. And I think it's more aspirational probably than realistic.
0: Mm. I do think there's something to be said for for having a strategy and observing the people who are successful around you, because mm. I do think emotion is very strategic. Like emotion gets a very bad rap, especially in situations of power or negotiating, mm-hmm. but emotion can be extremely strategic. Oh, completely.
1: Yeah, I think we over-index on like rationality, you know, because emotionality yeah. and rationality are defined in, in contrast to each other. So they're seen as mutually exclusive. But I mean, I think the fundamental thing is that we feel <sighs> emotions are happening all the time and they can be messy. Uh, so yeah, I think I think you're right. I think that's a very apt observation. And and what I would add to it is just reflecting or, or being on the lookout for where you're getting positive and negative feedback about your emotions. Mm. And then there's that second layer, which is like, what is true and what is not true. And that's where it gets harder, because I think you you could get feedback that you're being too aggressive. But given what the social science says, I would say that's actually a very gendered piece of feedback. And what it means is not that you're being too aggressive like objectively speaking, but that it's a clue that you are violating a socially held rule. And then what do I want to do about it? Again, this is really frustrating territory. The world that most of us want is where you could just be and be as aggressive as any of your men counterparts and, and it would be fine, but we're very far from that place. So then it's thinking through those moments and again, using emotion strategically to navigate through them often, it's through humor or through you know, to that HBR article, connecting with people in a different context because then that frees up kind of goodwill for you to be more kind of pointed or even being in conflict with people. So, I, I think there is a strategy there, it just takes a lot of time to figure out what it is and how to respond,
0: yeah. And it's also obviously very intersectional. And I, uh, you know, I, I'll mm. never forget that you know, when I've interviewed Black women on the show, frankly, and the way that they would strategically use emotion, it would be very different for me as a white woman, you know, unfortunately. Completely. We see emotion through lenses.
1: Yes, yes. And, you know, we're still in early days of research on emotions, you know, and, and gender and intersecting with other identities. And it's too bad because I think there's a lot of great qualitative work and great interviews with with people talking about how all of these kind of biases and stereotypes play out like you know being concerned about the you know angry black woman stereotype or the threatening black male stereotype and how that shows up in the workplace and how people have to sort of navigate through that and the burden that, that creates psychologically and emotionally and then the way that that plays out in performance reviews or what people say to you again in that chit chat it's it's a lot which is sort of the point that I think we're coming around to you know organizations are gendered and racialized and so when we talk about bringing our, our true selves to work it's like yes, except that we're walking into a set of conditions in which there's a lot of discrimination and a lot of really negative dynamics that are playing out around us that are actually undermining us and reproducing inequality. So how can we bring our full self to work in in that context? So well, and whose self is the right self? (laughs) You know, it's exactly. Well, I mean, look, the you know, I think a great example on that is, you know, feedback that a lot of different people get about how they don't quite have the right executive presence. Mm -hmm. Executive presence is said as if there's like, one form of executive presence. And I think we can all guess what people mean by that. It's this, you know, outdated idea that it's really how white men are and how they carry themselves and what they look like and and how, how they kind of physically act and how they behaviorally, you know, engage with people. And then if you're not in that group of folks are judged as deficient in a variety of ways. And so again, this is where you would notice if you're thinking that on the strategic side of this, I mean, it's not okay and that needs to change, but you know, when you're faced with it in the moment, it's like, well, what exactly are they getting at here? What is worth navigating through and what is even impossible? And sometimes it just isn't, it's just not, it's not possible because you're sort of set up so that you can't really get through these barriers. Uh, I was
0: digging through your archives. I found an interview that you did in 2014 with Ashley Milne Tights. Great podcast, Broadside, which I think just had its final episode. And you were talking about emotion at work and Ann Kramer was was on the show too. And I wanted to ask you about how women judge other women. Mm-hmm. maybe in terms of emotion. And Kramer said she had done some research that when women saw other women cry, they saw it as a personal failure, a moral failing on their part. Like they let mm-hmm. the home team down. <laughs> but in her work, which I don't know if it was qualitative or quantitative, if a man mm-hmm. saw a woman cry at work, he was like, oh, she cried. It happens next. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do, do you feel like this is still true? Or what What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I think it's an interesting observation. My guess is that's, you know, qualitative research or just hearing people talk about it. I mean, people can have a negative reaction when they see someone of their social group behaving in ways that confirms the stereotypes about them. Mm. In some ways, it's sort of you get it, but it's sort of like a very limited understanding of these stereotypes as if like, if if a woman leader just didn't cry, somehow that stereotype would go away. I mean, the real problem is, is the stereotype. So the sort of focus of that frustration seems to me like misplaced. I think it, again, depends on what's happening that's causing a woman leader or a woman at work to cry and how other women might perceive that. But there's definitely, you know, I think even getting back to the sort of strategy part and self-awareness part, it's like what stereotypes and biases do I actually have towards other folks? Because, I mean, what the research shows is that we all have them. And we're more or less conscious of certain things. But given how prevalent these stereotypes are, it means that when you are interacting with people and a woman does something, what is your reaction to what she's doing? And kind of thinking that through and being as self-aware as possible about why you're having that reaction. And I've definitely heard women reflecting on how they you know at earlier times in their career had a woman boss and they think they were harder on her because once they sort of are seeing these dynamics play out and they're alerted to them they're like I think I expected her to be nicer and i think she was doing what a lot of my other you know men bosses did but felt it landed differently and you know so having those insights i think is important too because we're all a part of this we don't stand adjacent to it it's not like just the people in that room are having biased team meetings. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's <laughs> happening everywhere. And every time I talk about these things, I almost get the sense that the people I'm talking to are like, oh, those people over there need to like get it together. And it's just <laughs> like, no, we all need to get it together. And we all need to understand that you can show bias and even discrimination towards your own group. I think that is one of the most misunderstood parts of the way kind of bias and discrimination work is that you somehow are unbiased, you know, against people of your own kind, but it's unfortunately not the case. So that level of self-awareness is important, not just for you, but for social change as well. I have to laugh because
0: when I work with employees who are very, very emotional and very, very anxious and, you know, want to take time away from work or ask for accommodations, I have had moments of like, suck it up. (laughs) yeah. (laughs) I'm like, oh my God, Maury, you are such a hypocrite.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Human (laughs) beings are endlessly complex and fascinating, and we contradict (laughs) ourselves all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Like, when is it okay and when is it not? When am I being objective? When am I being biased? I guess it's just at least to have that level of reflection is important. You know, it it helps you see things you wouldn't
0: otherwise. Okay. So, my final question, I'm going to spring it on you, but. I'm very passionate about helping people talk about their mental health at work in a way that helps them keep their status and Mm -hmm. maybe even grow it. Mm -hmm. Knowing what you know, which is a lot, about gender and status dynamics in our workplaces, what is the best way for me to do this? Like One of the things that I'm super conscious of is trying to book equal, if not more, men on the show than women because I don't want to further the label that only women feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do we talk about this stuff, acknowledging the stereotypes in a way that doesn't cause women to lose status or credibility?
1: Yeah. Well, it's this is sort of a larger thing I think about when it comes to social change, which is, you know, nothing happens unless someone speaks up. So nothing will change in terms of our beliefs about mental health until people speak up and and tell their story and so that we understand and learn more and you know realize that you know we struggle with things as well. however, I do find when people speak up that there often is some kind of negative reaction or price to pay and I particularly see this when it comes to like sexual harassment or bringing up some kind of negative dynamic that's happening in the workplace, if you speak up about it, you become the problem. I think it is hugely important for people to be forthcoming about you know, different you know, anxiety, depression, other things that, you know, mental health issues that we have. And I do think it changes things because I think when people hear other people's stories and hear the, their vulnerability, it changes their perception of these things in a way that's very positive. And at the same time, we know that it's still stigmatized. So I don't have a simple answer for this other than to say, at the end of the day, I think it's important to live a life where you speak up when you can. And what I mean by that is sometimes we're in a position, we just can't, we don't have enough influence, enough power, we need this job too much. You know, We have the least status on the team and, and we just can't. There are other times and contexts in our life where we can. And that when we can, we should. And that's sort of how I begin to think about this or the conclusion I've come to, I guess, over time is that you speak up when you can. And that over, over the long run, that means a lot of us will be speaking up. And that's what leads to social change. But we can't do it every time. That's just not the reality of the world that we're living in. There's too many constraints that people are facing. And it's unrealistic, but when you can do. And I would add that if you have status, please do. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a very interesting thing. And I've I've had this this kind of a conversation with a lot of women leaders who are like, what is my obligation to other women or other folks who are, you know, underrepresented? And some women leaders I think are almost put off by like, why do I owe anything to anybody? You know, it's not like my men colleagues do. And again, it's another thing <laughs> to think about and do. Um, I've spent and, every meeting employing 12 different calculus yeah. to just be heard. Like, I don't <laughs> want to do this. I'm exhausted. What else now? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I mean, I, and I take that point. And so what I've said in, in these moments is that I just think, you know, you may have had to force that door open, but I think you need to hold the door open for other people who are in the same social groups. So that we get more people in through that door. And again, this is just how you think about social change and what your role is in it. So getting back to that point, I think if you have a lot of status, which grants you a platform to speak up on things where even if you do get pushback, you can withstand that pushback, then it's kind of incumbent on you to do it if social change is what you want to achieve or help to achieve it maybe is it an additional thing to do and an additional burden on especially on a group of people who have always had to, you know, fight harder, so to speak, to get there. But otherwise, I just I you know, the world changes so so slowly as it is that without it it would be even harder, I think.
0: That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Kringko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.